0: Chapter two. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. Chapter two. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of of Judah, from whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the, the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus... After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had also who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together, the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when, he was, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthon and Teresh Or Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews People of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth month of the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it does not please or that it does not offer. It does not. It is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. So that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict, according to all Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old women and children in one day. In the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, this which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says. Please be seated. I heard of a a minister, a reformed pastor, who read all ten chapters of the book of Esther, read them, and concluded those ten chapters with this statement. That was lucky and then sat down i don't think he was being flippant i think that he was being provocative he was causing people to think deeper about what was really happening in the book of esther if the book of esther had been a play then the first two chapters would be setting the scene for us and introducing to us the main characters of this story They are Ahasuerus, Esther, and Mordecai. These are the characters that will dominate the rest of this story. We meet Mordecai, an older man, and his younger cousin, Esther. Esther's life has been marked by tragedy and also marked by blessing. The tragedy being that she's lost her parents. We don't know how she's lost her parents or when, why, but we know that she is an orphan. The blessing, God has given her beauty, and he's blessed her with love from her cousin Mordecai, who's treated her as his own daughter. In the second chapter, there is an empire-wide beauty contest in search for a new queen to replace disobedient Vashti. And Esther has been somehow involved as being one of the contestants for the king's heart. Now, we may read this portion of scripture and be puzzled as to why Esther would even allow herself to become part of something so disgraceful to women. But I don't believe that we are called as readers to judge Esther's participation in this immoral activity. Why? Because that's not the point of this whole story. We must be careful not to harp on things that are not really the main point of the story. We are given a picture into the depressing scene of that day in which women were chosen like livestock and treated as animals. God never in Scripture prescribes that women are to be treated in such a way. And yet, we learn that God is can even use a crooked stick in order to draw a straight line for his glory and for his purposes. Esther is chosen to replace Vashti. But even Esther being chosen as queen is not the point of this story. Think about all of the things that have happened thus far in chapters 2, 1, two, and even 3 maybe. We have a scattered people in the people of Israel. We have an oppressive leader. In Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, if you will, we have a rejected queen, an orphaned daughter, a disgraceful contest. And as real and as terrible as all of those things truly are, all of those things, none of those things are the point of this story. The point of this story is God and how God produces good where there appears to be no good. Good whatsoever. The story is about the power of God in this world, a world in which God often appears to be absent or aloof. His purposes, though, will not and will never be thwarted despite whatever adverse circumstances may be at our doors. Esther has been elevated to a position of legal authority she is now in a position where she will be able to accomplish something of great significance as we saw at the end of chapter 2 Mordecai, Esther's cousin and guardian was responsible for rescuing King Ahasuerus from two would-be assassins I wonder if when you read that you were thinking or you might have thought why would God want this pagan king to be saved from assassins would not he be would he not be getting what he deserved wouldn 't God be just in allowing a simple man to die? Yes, Ahasuerus was a pagan sinner, but there was a great plan of God through which this pagan king would be used and Let me just say as a side note, we must also be careful not to read the scriptures. And see a pagan king sin any worse than our sin. Because apart from Christ, we stand before God, equal sinners in Adam. The Apostle Paul Paul testifies to the truth of even evil men being used for God's great and good purposes. He says in Romans 9.21, has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use. God can do what he will with all of us. God was preserving therefore this sinful man, Ahasuerus, for his own good and perfect purposes. But rest assured, Ahasuerus would not ultimately be saved from the hands of assassins. Ten years later, he would be assassinated by the most powerful official in the Persian court, a man by the name Artabanus, who was his chief bodyguard. So Mordecai and his rescue of the king was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The writer has now left us wondering, what will happen now? Esther and Mordecai have been elevated to positions of honor. Esther is now the queen. Mordecai has saved the king. Now what's going to happen? Now what? The writer of the book of Esther has skillfully drawn us into the plot of this second and third chapter. And he is now unfolding for us the drama that will carry on throughout the rest of this book. As I said last time, the book of Esther is a story about, or is a story within a story. There are stories that are interwoven and ultimately coming together at the end of this story, but there are stories within this story. The book of Esther is a story about conflict. It is a microcosm, though. It is a smaller picture of a greater picture of the conflict between darkness and light. It's a smaller picture of the greater picture of the conflict between darkness and light, between truth and unbelief, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The writer gives us clues as we progress in the story that there is something bigger taking place in this story. There is yet another story. What we see in the book of Esther is conflict between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God. And right at the beginning of the third chapter, the writer highlights something that would have resonated with those Jews who were first reading this book. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, look there. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. And there's, there's a, a comma between those two, as if the writer is skillfully trying to draw our attention to the person and people of Haman the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman, the Agagite. Every Jew reading this would have immediately paused at this point and said, An Agagite? We've discussed this before, but Haman belonged to the Amalekite people. Although they were descendants of Esau, we meet them first in the book of Genesis. We meet them as a people. In the book of Exodus, when they confront and seek to attack the children of Israel as they are exodicing, if you will, from Egypt, the Amalekites became a people that were diametrically opposed to the Israelites. We may remember that from 1 Samuel, King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. The prophet Samuel put King Agag to death by the command of God, hacking him to pieces, as Scripture describes. Haman belonged to a people that were, again, diametrically opposed to the Jewish people. And Haman is carrying on the hatred that his people have had toward the Jews ever since Jacob and Esau wrestled in the belly of their mother. Haman belonged to a people that were the determined enemies of the Israelites. And now Haman has been elevated to second in command in the kingdom of Persia. Second in command. From the outset of the third chapter, the writer is skillfully saying to the readers, keep your eye on Haman. Watch out for Haman. Haman is the, he's the antagonist of this story. He is the, the villain of this story. And just as quickly as we are introduced to the antagonist, the villain of this story, We are reminded of who the protagonists, the heroes of this story are. Mordecai and Esther. So Haman is elevated to a prominent position. Verse two. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. The king has commanded that all the servants bow down and pay homage to Haman. Verse eight. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. When Haman hears about the actions of and reasonings of Mordecai, and we'll get more to that later, he's furious. But he does not immediately act on his anger. He conceives a plan that will not only deal with Mordecai, but also would deal with all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. He comes up with a plan. That would seem almost unbelievable if we had not witnessed it in our own history. He wants to exterminate all of the Jews. He is the first Hitler, possibly, if you will, who wants to destroy all of the Jews. Haman sought to destroy them. And so he cast lots or purr. He cast lots or purr. You will hear lots mentioned throughout Scripture. Have you, have you not seen they cast lots throughout Scripture? Casting lots is throwing dice. Haman is throwing dice in order to find out on what day and what month would be best to destroy the Jews. So he's using an a, a, a interesting and pagan approach to finding out what day would be deemed by the gods, if you will. To destroy these people. The plural form of per is perim or perim. And it is the name of the celebration that commemorates the death of Haman and the saving of the Jewish nation. But Haman takes his plan to the next level. Verse eight. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What is the king's response? Keep the money. I've got 10,000 talents to use for this mission. The king says, keep the money or use the money for this mission. Do what seems good to you. The provinces of Persia receive this decree. And news about a coming annihilation of the Jews reaches the peoples. Utter chaos and confusion fills the kingdom of Persia, which stretched from India all the way to the tips of Africa. And while there is chaos in those 127 provinces that stretch from India to Africa, while there is utter chaos, verse 15, the king and Haman sit down and have a drink. Utter chaos, while evil men sit back and enjoy their evil plots. What do we learn from all of this? What truths are we to take or gather from all that we have read in these two chapters, in this diabolical plan to destroy the Jews? What do we learn? I believe that there are at least three things that we learn from these two chapters. Number one, this is a long point, God's cause And people are never free from opposition and hostility. God's cause and his people are never free from opposition and hostility. What did we see in the Garden of Eden when all was created and described as being good? Well, we saw the evil one. In the guise of a serpent, disguised as a serpent, coming to what? To oppose the plans and purposes of God. And when he fails, and brothers and sisters, he will always fail. When he fails, what is the response of God? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He, Christ, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his tail. From that moment, there has been constant hostility and opposition of a fallen world to the kingdom and cause of its creator, almighty God. We see this opposition supremely displayed in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it was at his birth when a decree was made by Herod Herod to kill all the male uh, children and, and infants or Whether it be in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, after his his public baptism, where the Lord God affirms him as being his son, that he goes into the wilderness, and what happens? He is opposed by Satan for 40 days and for 40 nights. And most clearly, we see this opposition to the cause of God and to the purposes of God, to the kingdom of God at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ there is an, an opposition comes to a, a great climax at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where satan opposes christ and where satan is also destroyed by christ brothers and sisters god's cause and his kingdom in this world are never free from opposition never free from hostility and also his people, you and I, those who have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation. We also are never free from opposition and hostility. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He said in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Question, do you sense hatred from the world as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you sense or feel, have you experienced yet hatred from the world as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you feel the force of opposition in your own life or does life seem to be coasting along as it as it were? John sixteen thirty three. you may know this passage and you may even quote it with me as I say it. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Are you experiencing the tribulation that the Lord Jesus Christ warned or promised would come to his disciples? Another question is this. Do you understand what tribulation he is speaking about? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it was not death in the family. It was not sickness. It was not loss of jobs because of a slow market. It was not unfortunate realities of cars breaking down or children misbehaving. That is not the type of tribulation that Jesus is saying, take heart concerning. You may say, as I said, yes, I've experienced tribulation. I had a hard day yesterday. Had to work. Had to come home and cook for kids. My husband has done nothing around the house. Oh, Jesus, I know what you mean when you speak of tribulation. He would say to you, You know nothing of what I speak of when I speak of tribulation. The tribulation that the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking of was opposition and persecution that will come as a result of truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. The persecution that comes as a result of the cost of following Christ. This is being this is is being this this persecution is being directed or this is being rejected by family because of your faith in Christ. Be considered by your family as dead to them because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Losing your job because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's persecution. Children that are rebelling to parents because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is persecution. The government coming down on Christian churches. That is persecution. Trying to silence our scriptures. That is the persecution, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ encouraged us to take heart concerning because he has overcome the world. So then the question comes back. Are you experiencing, do you feel the force of the tribulation that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of? Do you feel that in your life? And if you do not, then why not? Are there any ways to avoid this kind of antagonism? As believers, is there any way to avoid this type of opposition as believers? Yes, there is. As believers, we can avoid we can avoid hatred and persecution from the world who naturally hates God. How? By hiding our faith. You want to avoid opposition? You'd like to avoid persecution? You can do so. Here's how. Hide your faith. Put it under a lampstand. Pray that no one sees your light. Pray that it doesn't shine too bright. Choose not to rock the boat. Choose to assimilate. Blend in. Give no impression that you belong to a people that are not of this world. And to a God who is ruler of this world. Hide what you are. And you may possibly avoid hatred and persecution. Does that that describe you at all? Do you hide what you truly are? Do you hide what you truly believe? Do you keep hush when you should speak up? You could also avoid opposition and persecution in this world by being a traitor, by being a Judas, one who is posing as a believer and is truly not a believer. Do you know anyone like that? It is amazing that there may be people, people sitting here this morning that are posing as believers. Posing as those who truly care about what's being said, but really do not. For the sake of not being numbered amongst those who the world has set its sight upon to harm. You can avoid that by being a traitor. You can avoid that by being a Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He posed as his friend, but in his heart, he actually hated the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that describe you this morning? Are you one that poses as being a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet in your heart you were just waiting for the the opportune moment moment to desert him? When it is convenient for you. What a dangerous place to be in. One person pretends not to be with Christ, but he really is, while the other person pretends to be on the side of Christ when he really is not. Brothers and sisters, may I say to you that neither one of these types are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a true believer, the Lord Jesus Christ says you are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. If you're a true believer, then there is no hiding your faith. There is no assimilation. There is no compromise for the sake of escaping possible hatred or escaping possible hostility. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He said in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. There are no betrayers. There are no apostates in the kingdom of God. There are no chameleons in the kingdom of God. There are only sheep. Sheep who follow faithfully their shepherd. Who are not afraid of persecution. Who are not afraid of opposition. Who follow the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully and diligently. Brothers and sisters, the writer of the book of Esther is saying that hostility, hatred and opposition are the realities for those who are a part of the kingdom of God. And we will always face them and face them head on. If you truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ on this side of the world, we don't know what it is to experience opposition to the degree that those in other lands, believers in other lands experience. But we must ask ourselves, what will happen? What will happen when that persecution reaches our shores? What will happen when that persecution reaches our shores? Who will be on the Lord's side? Who will stand and wave the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you and I embrace hostility come what may? Secondly, we learn from this chapter that godly nonconformity May be the right and righteous option for a believer. Godly non-conformity. May be the right and righteous option. For a true believer. What in the world do I mean? <laughs> Let me. Describe this from the scriptures. Esther chapter 3 verse 2. And all. The king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage To Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. Everyone is bowing down. Do you see the word all there? All. And in this case, all does mean all. (laughs) All are bowing down. There was not one person who was not bowing down. All except one, Mordecai. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that we are to honor and respect civil authority. Why? Because they are ultimately not in that place because they had the power themselves to attain that position on their own. And because also the people have, have, are not necessarily the ones responsible through their vote of placing that person in that position, but rather God. Sovereign God, almighty God, has chosen to place that person in that position at that particular time. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted, placed there, established by God. How in the world, you may ask, did Donald Trump. Become the president of the United States of America. In the WWE Hall of Fame. Got stunned by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Sitting in the White House. Because America wanted to be great again. So we made him our new president. Well in one sense yes. The people used their free choice to elect this man. So in one sense, yes. But in a greater sense, in the macrocosm of this picture, it is God who has elected our new president. And it is God who allowed this man to be in the position that he's in. One may disagree God would not pick this man. Then you are rejecting the sovereign will of God. Of course, this is God's doing. Daniel two twenty one. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. God does this. God did this. Peter encourages us to do good to one another and also to honor the emperor. So let's get back to the story. Here is Mordecai and he is not honoring civil authority that has been established by God. How do you respond to that? He refuses to bow down and pay homage to this man that was established by King Ahasuerus and also was commanding all of the people to bow down and pay homage to him. So how do you explain this? And imagine the scene again, all of the servants bowing down. You can imagine if everybody's heads are bowed and Mordecai and Haman is passing by and notices that everyone is bowed except for one person standing up. Mordecai. And he would obviously stand out because he's the only one standing. Right? Was Mordecai simply being rebellious? Was Mordecai jealous? No, not at all. The king's servants came to Mordecai. Here's the the answer. The king's servants came to Mordecai. And they have one pressing question for Mordecai. Why do you transgress the king's command? Are you crazy? Do you not understand the consequences of disobeying the king's command? Did you not see what happened to Vashti? And that was his wife. What do you think the king will do to you because of your insubordination? What on earth is your problem? And Mordecai gave them the reason why he would not bow down. Verse 4 tells us that Mordecai told them he was a Jew. No great explanations are there. There is only one explanation. I belong to a people that belong to God. And I will not bow down to a man who has publicly made his hatred known for my people and their God. The implication is that Mordecai, after being pressed over and over again, says, I will not. I will not bow down. I'm a Jew. I belong to the people of God. And he had his own, if I perish, I perish moment. He had his own, come what may, I am Mordecai, I belong to the people of God, I am a Jew, I will not bow down. He had his own, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael moment. You can throw us into the fire, O king. But we will not bow down. In chapter 2, Mordecai commanded Esther... To hide her Jewish roots. And now in chapter 3 he is going public with his Jewish roots. (laughs) Esther is rightly hailed as being the one who said, If I perish, I perish. And we'll discuss that next week. But Mordecai always also had his moment. He also had his moment. I belong to a people that belong to God. And I will not bow down to a man that dishonors our God. I wonder, brothers and sisters, what would you do? What would you do in that moment? When your leaders are opposed to God and opposed to his people, how do you respond? How will you respond? I pray, brothers and sisters, friends, and even visitors, that your first allegiance will not be to a flag. Not to a nation. Not even to one man who sits in a White House or one woman, possibly, who sits in a White House. But that your allegiance will first and foremost be to God, come what may. That your allegiance will always and must always be to God. I'm not an American first. I'm a Christian first. I'm a follower of Christ first. That is no disrespect to anyone who has fought for this country. We thank God for them. But they did not come to save my soul. The Lord Jesus Christ did. Godly nonconformity, Not conforming. Sounds very rebellious, doesn't it? Not conforming. It may often be the, the righteous option for a believer. The righteous option. You hear that? The righteous option for a believer. We must act within the laws that have been established in this country that we live in. Yes, obey all the laws. But the moment that those laws oppose the only infallible law of God... Then immediately rise up and do not conform. Do not pay homage. Do not bow down. Amen. You're a Baptist. You can say amen. This is who I am. This is the God that I serve. If it means that I must suffer and be punished because of the laws of man that oppose the laws of God, then let every man be a liar and only God be true. There may be times in our lives that we may have to stand up and proclaim, come what may, if I perish, I perish, or here I stand, so help me God. It may cost you your jobs, it may cost you friends, it may cost you influence, it may cost you allegiances. If only you had not been so firm in your faith. If only you had been more silent if only you had been more quiet about the rampant immoralities that this world is filled with. If only you had been not so different. If only you had just gone with the flow. Could you live with yourselves if you don't speak up? Could you live with yourselves if you do nothing? If you can live with it. then it's a very telling indication as to where you are spiritually. Godly nonconformity may be often the righteous option of a true believer. And it is really the only option for those who want God to be glorified in this world. And finally, what do we learn from this chapter? That there are times when God's cause in this world may appear to be hopeless. There are times when God's cause in this world may appear. And I wrote on my notes in parentheses, appear to be hopeless. All the plans of God or all the plans have been to destroy the Jews, men, women, children, young and old. Esther 315 and king, the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Imagine you're living As a Jew in between India and Africa, and a decree has been made that there will be a certain day where it will be legal for people to kill you and take everything that you have. This. And here's also the encouragement. Get ready for that day. Verse 14. Get ready for that day. Be prepared. Be ready for that day. All women, children, men, uh, all Jews will die. And people are allowed to kill you and take your things. Here's your encouragement. Be ready. It was be ready for those who were to kill and be ready for those who were to be killed. If that's you, what are you thinking? I can remember growing up in the 80s. I was born in 79. I call myself a 70s baby. My wife says you're not. Born in 79. Someone just looked at me really weird like you're born in 79. 79. The president during my childhood was Ronald Reagan, all the way until 1989. He was the only president I, I knew growing up. The next president would be George H. Bush. My whole young life, all the way until I was maybe 12 or 13, maybe 13, 14, I'd only known of Republicans in the White House and all in our church Seemed to be happy, all in our house, seemed to be very red and excited. Until 1993, 1994, the world seemed to end. Bill Clinton was elected as president. For the first time in almost 13 years, 14 years, we had a Democrat as a president. I was attending a political church and there was a sense of utter hopelessness and despair that was upon all of, the people, all of the people, and I can remember asking my dad when the president, that, that president was elected, does this mean that we're going to die? And I was seriously, as a young child, concerned with, are we going to war? Are we going to die? What will happen now that we have this democratic president in the White House? That may have been a little bit. Of what those Jews were feeling at that time. Times one million. There was a decree that they would die. And all seems to be hopeless. There are times when the cause and kingdom of God in this world appears to be hopeless. But Haman made a fatal mistake. And it could be easily overlooked when you read the book of Esther. Do you know what his mistake was? Haman made a terrible mistake. I want you to think about that for, some, for a moment. What was his mistake? Psalm forty Don't turn there, but listen. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of man. In whom there is no salvation. What was his mistake? What was Haman's grand and great mistake? He put his trust in King Ahasuerus. What do you mean by that? He trusted that King Ahasuerus would allow the plans of annihilating the Jews to go forward without any interruption or any change. But Ahasuerus is a man. And Ahasuerus is subject to change. Put not your trust in princes or kings because they will change. But God will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. However much it appears that the cause of God is hopeless in the in this world. Remember that the cause and kingdom of God is founded on the promises and word of God. And if God promises, God's word will never return void. God promises. Issues, decrees, and those decrees never come back changed. They come back or they go out and they accomplish the mission and the goal for which they were set. Jesus said in John and Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Haman's fatal mistake was this. He put his trust in a man. He put his trust in King Ahasuerus and King Ahasuerus would soon have his mind and his heart changed by a Jewish orphan girl. He put his trust in man and Haman would would soon be hung on gallows that were prepared for a man that he intended to kill. Where is your trust this morning? Where is your hope this morning? It may feel like all is lost, like there is no hope whatsoever. But if your trust and your faith is in God, then your hope is built on a firm rock that will never be shaken and never be broken. Where is your trust this morning? We may look at the results, and I, I, don't, mean to be, I don't mean to have such a political sermon this morning, but we may look at the results and feel that The rest of our four or possibly eight years is hopeless. Rather than seeing people march and protest, I would rather see people rally and pray. He's there. Deal with it. Support him. Pray for him. And I would be saying the same thing if it were Hillary Clinton. Support the person that God has placed there because God has placed them there. So pray for them. Give them a shot. (laughs) Things might go well. Who knows? But my hope does not ultimately rest in the plans and purposes of a man. My hope rests in the plans and purposes of Almighty God who is ordering all events of this human world for his glory and for his people. Place your faith in Christ. Not in princes. Not in kings. Or in presidents. Or in prime ministers. Or in judges. Or in courts. Or in Rush Limbaugh. Or in Rachel Maddow. Chris Matthews, place your faith in Christ alone. If you have placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you've repented of your sins, your faith is in Christ and in Christ alone, you have no reason to despair. You have no reason to despair. God's promises will come to pass and you will be a benefactor of those promises. He came to give life to those who are walking in darkness. He came to seek and save the lost. We would never go seeking after him. He came and sought us. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, I encourage you, turn to Christ, place your faith in him, turn from your sins, repent of your sins. Find that Christ will be a perfect savior for your soul. And have a hope that is anchored and that will never be shaken in him. Let us stand.